Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. I wanted to take a minute at the beginning of this episode to apologize if anybody had been trying to click on the hyperlinks at the bottom of the main page below each episode. Um, I had early on had been putting hyperlinks saying click here for show notes. Most of some of you might not have even realized those were hyperlinks. Literally, you click the word here. And it takes you to the blogger page where you can actually go through all the notes for each episode. And things like book reviews, I usually don't put them up there or anything. But I had checked earlier and for some reason, whether by shame say maybe my negligence of double checking, about 17 of them were either not working or not visible. So I will be fixing those this week. So some of you might not have even been aware that I do post all the notes for everything. So it has all the verses, all the references, and everything, even um, citations at times. And so those should be fixed sometime this week. Um, probably won't take me too long. But also, just making a plug also, that um, sometimes the quickest way for somebody to request a topic or to give me a question for another episode to do um, is either putting something on the Facebook page So um, www.facebook.com slash rbfellowship, that's the letters rbfellowship, and you can go there and just ask me a question. You can even send me an email from that page too, and the email, which is at the end of every episode, is um, brotherjohn, J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. So just making a plug for those things because... Some people might have had problems accessing the notes, and other people might not have even been aware that we had a Facebook page, or that um, there is the email at the end of every episode, because you have to get through all the way through each episode, and then after, um, my friend Jeff, the um, guy who talks at the end with uh, Holbrook New Media, um, he's another podcaster, he's kind of my tech guy, any problems that I have, I go to him. So just making a plug there for you, Jeff. But um, some people might not have been aware that we had those means, and Facebook might be a quicker and easier way to give a request for an episode, too. But um, in this episode, also mentioning not everything that we're going to be talking about in this topic of truth is going to be covered in this episode. Probably going to be doing another episode based upon the list of references that I'm going to give at the beginning, which is quite lengthy. Some things that we can glean from all these references to truth in the Bible and what's to be done with it and the implications of it. So not everything is going to be covered in this episode. And I really don't know how well this episode is going to flow. Just there's a lot of things that I wanted to cover, some things I've talked about before, but some things that I'm just now want, just now putting out there. So, But in this episode, I'm talking about what I believe is one of the most important things necessary for Christian growth. And I say necessary, because what we're talking about is pleading for truth, that is seeking truth. And we'll have a better understanding of that as we go through this episode of what that means. Uh, If you want a really quick synopsis, kind of, the last question that I did a 15-minute answer on um, covers a lot of it. And also, the Bible versions episode, I think it's part two, The Nature of Translation, kind of addresses some of the same ideas in truth and these sorts of things. 
but here specifically we're going over it in detail. And Lord willing, next episode also. So before we even get into anything, I'd like to go through just a list, not even a, an entire list, of all the things that the scriptures say and tell us regarding truth, things that we are to do with truth, things that are to be done with truth, and those sorts of things. And so, just listen to this list, and it is lengthy. And um, again, if you want all these references, just go to the show notes whenever they're put up, and I should say something, click here for show notes, and it will take you to the place where you can just literally read all these things if you want to copy and print them out and all sorts of things like that. Just go ahead and go there. So I'm just going to read all these things because it's so lengthy, I really am not going to read all the verse references. <laughs> so the Bible tells us we serve God in truth with all of our heart and with all our soul. We are to walk before God in truth. We're told to speak the truth in our hearts. We are told to be led in God's truth. We are told to declare truth. We are told to, that we are to be preserved by truth. We are told to desire truth in our inward parts. We're told God's truth is our shield and buckler. We're told that we will be judged by God's truth. We are told that we must choose the way of truth. God's not going to force it on you. You have to choose the way of truth. We are told to call upon God in truth. We are told that it is by mercy and truth iniquity is purged. We are to plead for truth. Truth is to be sought. We ought to be valiant for the truth, we're told. It is to be understood. It is to be loved. We must do the truth. We are to worship God in truth. We are told to bear witness to the truth. We are told that truth makes us free. We are told to abide or continue in the truth. We are told that Jesus is the truth. We are told that the Holy Spirit of God is the spirit of truth who will lead believers into all truth. We are told that the word of God is truth. We are sanctified, which means to be set apart or made holy through the truth. We are told that the wicked hold or suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We are told that the wicked change the truth of God. We are told truth is to be obeyed. Truth is to be rejoiced in. We are told that being sealed with the Spirit is contingent on your hearing and believing the truth. We are told that the truth is in Jesus. We're told the fruit of the Spirit is in all truth. We're told that we are to gird our loins with truth. We're talking about the whole armor of God. You must receive the love of the truth. We're told it's to be believed. We're told that God has chosen us in Christ through the belief of the truth and the sanctification of the Spirit who is the spirit of truth. We're told the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. We're told that false prophets are destitute of the truth. We're told that the truth is to be rightly divided. 
You can err from the truth. You can be ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You can resist the truth. We're told that the acknowledging of the truth is after godliness. We're told that we are to receive the knowledge of the truth. We are told that believers are begotten of God or born of God by the word of truth. We're told that you can lie against the truth. We are told that we are to purify our souls in obeying the truth. We're told the truth is not in those who don't acknowledge and confess their sin. We're told the truth is not in those who do not obey God's commandments. We're told that the anointing that believers receive of God is truth. We're told that the Spirit is truth. We're told to love in the truth. And we can be fellow helpers to the truth. Now, as you consider that lengthy list of things having to do with truth in the scriptures, it is quite a sobering thing. And that's not even all the references. This alone should show you the importance of pleading for truth. Many people quote Acts 17.11, which says, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. They were double-checking Paul's words to make sure they were correct. Few people, though, seem to understand that just as the Bereans searched the scriptures, was searching the scriptures was good for them to lead them to salvation, even so after salvation, all of us are to continue in the same mindset of examining all things by the word of God. The Lord said through Isaiah the prophet that in Israel at the time, there was none that called for justice or any that were pleading for truth. Now, many newer translations render the words with a little less force, in my opinion, and I don't believe that it's just a passing reference to bad court practices by people. It says to plead for truth is something that God is pleased with. God is looking for those who plead for truth. And in addition to Isaiah 59.4, that reference, in Jeremiah 5.1, it says, Run ye to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and see now, and know and seek in the broad places thereof. If ye can find a man, if there be any that executeth judgment, that seeketh the truth, and I will pardon it. See, the Lord here valued a man who sought after truth so much that he offered pardon if the prophet could find one such man in Jerusalem. And it's important for you to realize that the Lord did destroy Jerusalem. The Lord delights in those who plead and seek after truth. Too many people in professing Christianity today have no understanding of what it is to plead for truth. It's a mindset and an uprightness of heart that values and desires what is true above all else. It abhors or hates error and lying vanities. And the scripture tells us that no lie is of the truth. We're told in John that those that do the truth come to the light that their deeds might be made manifest that they are wrought in God. Somebody who does the truth wants the truth. And so they are continuously examining themselves in the light of God's word. That they, they, would, make sh they, they would truly prove 
that what they're doing is pleasing to God by the objective standard of his word. We're told, I'm just a passing reference where it said, where I just said that, um, that these kind of people hate error and lying vanities. And it's, even in the book of Jonah, the Lord said through the prophet Jonah that they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. I mean, these are important things that people need to think about. These are things the scriptures say. Now, let me briefly go back over one or two points of um, my previous involvement with um, a certain denomination. See, my grounding in the faith after I was converted was in the independent fundamental Baptist movement. Now, I have since left that denomination. I was deeply grounded in their doctrines, and I even attended a Bible institute, and later I briefly attended a college. Once I was seeking them a degree in biblical studies, then changed over to a degree in ministry. Now, all these were independent, fundamental Baptist in their statements of faith. And if I am to be plain and honest, I value very little of anything that I was taught in these years. Uh, one thing I do, though, I was taught that the scriptures were the only valid authority for a Christian. And that was my groundwork. And though many groups profess the same thing, in practice they deny it. Every other supposed authority, pastor, preacher, teacher, group, whatever, derives their delegated authority only as far as they are in agreement with the true authority of God's word. Everything, person, preacher, doctrine, practice, desire, etc., is to be examined by the authority of God's word. And if it isn't being examined by God's word, then it is replaced God's word with itself. Now, the entire time I was in the independent fundamental Baptist movement, I was continually praying for God to teach me his truth. I wanted whatever God's truth was. The problem was that in my mind, I esteemed fundamentalist doctrine to be synonymous with the truth. You see, whatever you hold to be your ultimate standard of truth is what you examine all other things by. And that's why many people say, at least in their hearts or in the back of their minds, well, I know that isn't true because it doesn't line up with what I've been taught. Well, we, well, we know this is true, so it, this passage can't be saying that. And that thought takes many different forms. The proper biblical standard of truth, and therefore the proper biblical mindset, is that God is true and his word is true. God cannot even conceive of a lie, we're told, in Titus 1-2. Therefore, whatever God does, says, and is, is absolutely true. Since the Lord does not change, as he is the same from everlasting to everlasting, neither does the truth change. It is not different between people or situations. There is no such thing as situational ethics where lying may be appropriate at a certain time and in a certain place. If that were true, then God could not say that all liars shall be cast into the lake of fire. A lie is a lie regardless of the intended purpose of its use, because the intended purpose is intentional deception. Neither can God say something through his spirit that contradicts his written word. 
when it is taken in context appropriately. God cannot contradict himself. He is truth and the source of it. If he were to contradict himself in any way, he would be speaking what? An untruth, a lie. The Lord cannot do this, and neither can those who themselves are partakers of his nature through Jesus Christ. The only way to do it is to not be following Christ. Now, back to my background, but after X number of years in this movement, the Independent Fundamental Baptists, through a series of events, I was provoked to go back and examine my doctrine. Not because I believed I was wrong, but because I saw that I had been unwilling to be corrected. Independent fundamental Baptist doctrine had been esteemed in my mind to be synonymous with truth and right doctrine, so therefore it had never been examined by me. It had been received. And I saw the error in this and settled in my mind that though I believed I was correct in my doctrine, I wanted to strictly go through the scriptures without presupposing anything and come to an understanding of biblical doctrine. What could possibly go wrong with prayer, a willing mind for God's instruction, and the study of the scriptures? What followed, very quickly I might add, was a very difficult correction. I consistently started seeing fallacies in my reasoning, errors of plain interpretation, errors of grammatical interpretation, things had been assumed as true that had never been proven, and conclusions I had assumed to be true that did not follow the reasons that had been given to support those things. And after a certain doctrinal question in particular, I was so grieved that I, I almost couldn't stop crying for three days. I would just go to work, and as soon as I would walk in, I would just start crying. People could see it on my face, and, and they would pull me aside and say, what's wrong with you? I was so unsettled in my mind and spirit towards the Lord because I realized that I had taught and preached before to people these things in Jesus' name. I had put words, doctrines, and teachings into God's mouth that he neither said nor intended. And these things were so clearly not taught in the scriptures that the only mind that could receive them was either unconverted or unconcerned with the truth. And that's a dangerous place to be. I had been unconcerned enough with truth to examine these things. I just received what I was taught. I had not been willing to be corrected, and so therefore I never was. Now in John 14, we read, If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. Verse 26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, Whatsoever I have said unto you. And in John fifteen twenty six we read, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, 
he shall testify of me. It's Christ speaking. And again, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, we read, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. The Spirit of God, the Spirit that a Christian is born of, is called the Spirit of Truth. We are told by the Lord Jesus that he teaches us the truth and shall guide us into all truth. Now, what then can explain to us the reason why we have so many denominations that contradict each other? Now, I think I can tell you. See, in, in the Gospel of John, we read, If any man will do his will, Christ is speaking of God the Father, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. And, in, and that's John chapter 7, verse 17. In another place, we're told that if ye be otherwise minded, God will make it manifest to you. Now, the immediate application of this is directly to Christ's teaching while he was ministering on the earth. Talking about John chapter 7, verse 17. And people were examining his doctrine to see if it was true. And Christ pointed them to the scriptures and he said, you know, search the scriptures for in them you think ye have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. And in this place he says, he says, if any man will do his will, talking about God the Father, he shall know of the doctrine. And then Paul elaborates later and says that if you are otherwise minded, if you were in error, God will make it manifest unto you. Contingent upon what? There's a principle very clearly laid down here. There was, must be a willing mind in the person before they will receive instruction and discernment. Here specifically it's talking about you must be willing to do God's will. And in John chapter 3 it says, They that do the truth come to the light, that their deeds might be made manifest that they are wrought in God. The person who wants to know God's will and teaching so that they may do it unto the Lord is the one that will be instructed. And is even illustrated in the Old Testament whenever a, the angel speaks to Abraham, which is generally believed to be a pre-incarnation appearance of Christ. And he says in the presence of Abraham, Shall I show my servant Abraham what I am about to do? And then he gives a reason, um, which is assumed because of why he will, is because he says that he will instruct others regarding those things, regarding his children. The Lord will instruct people who will do his will and who will teach others to do his will. And this is in alignment with the whole New Testament. People too many times trust in intuition or feelings and say things like, as soon as you said that, it greatly troubled my spirit. Well, that doesn't sit well with me. And while these things are not necessarily wrong in and of themselves to say, unless there is a scriptural reason for these feelings, it's just foolishness. All conviction of sin and correction will make you feel uncomfortable. The question is whether or not the charge is correct and biblical. Now, I can count on one hand the number of teachers, preachers, pastors that I have ever heard actually express a true willingness to be corrected. I say a true willingness to be corrected. Now, many say that they will believe anything the Bible says, but as soon as you point something out, you receive hostility. 
You've threatened their pride, their reputation, and the safe little kingdom of their ministry, and by your desire for them to search the scriptures whether these things are so. Now, why is that the case? Why is it such a difficult thing for people to maintain a desire for truth? I believe I understand a few reasons why it is so. One, people seek comfort. Nowadays, it's very easy to join a church somewhere, get involved, feel the sense of community and belonging, and feel satisfied. You know, got to cling to your church family. Happy, fat, and lazy without a care in the world. Keep up the status quo because it keeps us comfortable. This is completely contrary to the Acts Church. They were constantly examining things, provoking unto greater love and holiness, denying themselves, giving up any claim to the right of a good reputation in the sight of men, and giving up any claim to control of their lives. They were constantly stretching themselves forth to please God more, and to be more zealous for his name and his gospel, to be more zealous for the truth. And that is the exact opposite of the maxim today of sit back, relax, and enjoy your salvation. Um, two, people want to be nice people or good people in the sight of the world instead of desiring to be godly and holy people. And the two are not necessarily synonymous to, if you define them correctly. You will find today an insatiable desire to not rock the boat. Church is done today to maintain church not to glorify God. People want community instead of what the Bible proclaims, persecution. And I'm guilty of it just as much as anyone else. We naturally want to avoid trouble, and we certainly don't go looking for trouble. In the world, Christ said, you will have it, though, if you follow him. We cannot expect to be treated better than Christ was. And the only way to avoid trouble and to be perceived as just a nice person is to not follow Jesus wholly. It's not a buffet, and you can't pick which commandments or conditions of discipleship you want to act on. And that's the discipleship of Christ. Jesus is the truth, he said, and it's either all of it or none of it. You must understand God has called Christians to be holy, not just nice, not just good people or moral people. You see, because a nice person is not going to chase people out of the temple with a scourge of cords. But Jesus did. And he was zealous for the truth of God's name and person, and it moved him to defend it. Three, and I do believe that all of these flow out of the same vein, which is pride. And I believe a strongly contributing factor is because they don't want to be alone. We've been deceived today into the mindset that if you're alone, you're wrong. And that's not what the Bible says. While we are a body of believers, we are told that we are still members in particular. That is, we are still individuals. There comes a point of apostasy and sin that is necessary to separate from, the Scripture says. If all the churches in your community are Catholic, you don't have to go to them. If all the churches in your area 
teach that Jesus was not God, you better not go to any of them. And you don't have to pretend like it's okay to be around people who profess to be Christians. It says in the book of Jeremiah that all the people in the house of the Lord were gathered together against Jeremiah. I believe many churches have passed this point already, and it follows from having no real desire for the truth of God. Many ministers are unwilling to examine things that they might have taught for 25 years. And that's because they've exalted their ministry above God's word, and really above God himself. Just as the Lord said would happen, where men would be more desirous to please men than God, they would seek the delight and pleasure of men and esteem of men than the esteem and delight that comes from God. And that's why I have so much respect whenever I hear of the boldness for the ones who do receive correction. See, that's a man and ministry that is founded truly in delighting in God. And that's a man who is walking in the spirit of truth. Now, someone might think that since they've been converted, they've turned from sin to follow Christ, that they have no need to seek for truth anymore. Well, God will tell me if I'm wrong, because if I be otherwise minded, he shall make it known unto me. Well, all things being equal, that would be true. But those who say such things assume one thing, that they're listening. See, what God is talking about here is not some passive, well, I'll just continue doing all things without a care in the world, and if I'm wrong, God will send a little lightning bolt to my brain and tell me. How is it exactly that, you're, that God is going to make known to you that you were in error? A voice? Well, that's dangerous. Any spirit can speak to you in a still, small voice. How do you know it's God? You're told to test the spirits if they are of God. So it's not supposed to be some still, small voice leading you. Otherwise, God cannot tell you to just test every spirit. By what? What are you supposed to test things by? By that which God has already said. Truth is consistent and in unity, and God is told, and the Lord has told us that he cannot deny himself. He will not contradict himself. Otherwise, he would make himself a liar. Now, Christ told the Pharisees to search the scriptures because they were that which testified of him. Interesting fact there that where it says that Christ said that scriptures are those which testified of him. Christ in another place said that the Spirit of God testified of him. Here's another illustration where the scriptures and the and the Spirit are always in agreement. They do the same thing. The difference is you need both of them. Now Paul said the Bereans were more noble because they examined his words in light of Scripture. Paul, who had seen the risen Lord, was glad that people were examining his words by Scripture. And I've talked a lot about this in other episodes, so I won't go in-depth now. But the reason that we're supposed to keep seeking truth is because truth is something that is acted on. It is something that is to be understood, learned, and taught. And any time there is information or principles that must be acted on, understood, learned, or taught, then there is the chance of corruption and error. And since it is your mind that is to understand these things and act upon them, you must acknowledge that you are fallible. You make mistakes, errors of understanding. You are not complete in your understanding of the Bible, doctrine, or God. 
And again, every Christian will admit that, but very few act like it. There's another instance where in words you may say it, but in your heart you deny it. You are fallible. You make mistakes just like me. God is infallible. He never makes mistakes. So which is going to be your ultimate standard of truth, God or man? could be any man or even a group of people. A church is nothing more than a group of fallible people. A pastor, teacher, preacher, evangelist, commentator, whatever, is nothing more than a man. And man at his best state is altogether vanity, the scripture says. That's why every one of these people, or groups of people, are to be examined by that which is infallible. To not be examining all these people by God's word is to exalt them over God. Remember, you will examine all things by whatever is your ultimate standard. So whatever it is that you were looking at all things saying, well, it can't be this because of that. That's what your ultimate standard is. Is it God's word? Or is it a doctrinal conviction? Is it God's word or is it your feelings? Is it God's word? Or is it your pride, your reputation? Now, this is exactly what Christ alluded to when he told the Pharisees. He said, But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15, 9. This is exactly what we do in churches nowadays. People don't search the scriptures to see if what their pastor or church doctrines are what the Bible actually says. We're taught to be immovable stones for our church or denomination, and that's wrong. We are to be immovable servants of Christ, and those two things are not synonymous. Now, I really challenge you to examine your thought processes when you read the scriptures, study them, or listen to your favorite teacher or minister. Are you really testing them? Or is it that you are just receiving what they're saying? Now, at this point, I'll address a very common argument that comes up. People often say, but the Bible can be interpreted any number of ways. There's a thousand interpretations of those things. And that's true. Any written document can be interpreted any number of ways. This kind of philosophy is called deconstructionism. And I'll tell you right now, it's ridiculous. Someone who actually holds to deconstructionism is someone who really just doesn't want to be morally bound by anything, especially not God. I mean, this is, this is a, ref, a self-refuting viewpoint. In essence, it says that it, if you, it's just as much a fallacy for somebody to say, well, the Bible has any number of interpretations. Nobody can really understand it. As much as to say that a single sentence that you say can have any number of interpretations. Why? What's the difference? It's a statement. The Bible is a list of statements. That's all that it is. All written... All things written down in, in language are just statements. So think about that. What's the difference? There isn't one. Let's say you, you came to me and you said, Hi, my name's Matthew. And I looked at you and said, Hi, Stacy. You say, No, no, my name's Matthew. I was like, No, you couldn't, you couldn't really mean that. How I interpreted what you said was, Your name's Stacy. And you can say, no, I, I mean, I'm the one who said it. I know what it says. And say, I said, my name is Matthew. And it's like, I know that's what you said, but nobody can understand everything. I can, interp- I can interpret it any way that I want. It's just another, this is just another philosophy that even those who actually do it and believe it, or at least advocate it, do not actually live consistent with it. Such as 
There's books written on deconstructionism. Now I want you to just think about that. A book written for people to buy, read, and understand and follow based upon the premise that you can't really understand absolutely what other people say. You see the contradiction there. Regarding this viewpoint, um, Dr. Jason Lyle says in his good book, Understanding Genesis, he says, A given text has an unlimited number of potential interpretations, but it has only one meaning. Thus, it is reasonable for us to define the term correct interpretation as the interpretation that matches the meaning of a text, the one that is faithful to the author's intention. All other interpretations will be faulty. That is, they are not true to what the passage means, since communication involves the transmission of an idea, and since communication is only achieved when the recipient understands the meaning, it follows that only a correct interpretation of a text accomplishes genuine communication. Anything else is merely introspection. Now, the fact of the matter is that though a passage can be interpreted any number of ways, it has, by necessity of its design, only one correct interpretation. It has only one intended meaning, the one the author intended to convey to the reader. We're not free to say, what does that verse mean to you? I really don't care what it means to you. What does it mean to God? The correct interpretation of the scripture will always be constrained by the rules of grammar, logical consistency, and proper historical context. Now let me briefly state why I chiefly mention those three things. I'll repeat it. I'll repeat that. The correct interpretation of the scriptures will always be constrained by the rules of grammar, logical consistency, and the proper historical context. And I'll briefly talk about why. One, grammar is important because God has chose language to convey his intended message and commandments to men. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, Peter said. They spoke in language. And even on the day of Pentecost, we can glorify the working of the Spirit of God, and we ought to, absolutely. But I want you to see that when the Spirit of God moved, the people spoke. And God chose language to convey his intended message. Now, since it is then God the Spirit speaking through men, and when regarding the Scriptures, directing what they had written, grammar would then be expected to be followed accurately. Now, when this is violated in interpreting Scripture, you get such results as the Now Faith Movement. I forget how many decades ago it was, but they said, no, we're not just having normal faith, we're having Now Faith. Where they make Now in the sentence to be an adjective, modifying faith, as opposed to what it actually was grammatically, where the verse says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. I don't think anybody who actually reads that verse ever has any problem understanding that. 
but it's just another instance where somebody builds an entire doctrine, and in that case, a movement, based upon one false interpretation that could have been cleared up if the person just studied a little bit of grammar. Two, logic is important, because God does not make any errors in reasoning. All true wisdom and understanding come from him. Now, some people believe that the study of logic is a science man created, and this shows that they've never actually looked into the matter. I used to believe that when I was in the fundamentalist movement. You're taught, I mean, you're almost discouraged from actually studying anything. And one thing you have to realize is we get the word logic from the, where we get the Greek word logos, which is the term used to describe Christ as the word. And in the Greek philosophy, the idea of it, of the logos, that John was putting forth, a Greek in the first century would have absolutely understood the wisdom and true understanding of all things as proceeding from the Creator. And John tells us, that's Christ, in whom dwelleth all the wisdom of the God and the, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, who is the wisdom of God, we're told. Now, logic is the science of reasoning. It's not rhetoric or homiletics. It is a science that was developed by observing things, ordering things in a consistent manner, so as to lead to a conclusion that follows properly from the arguments presented. The conclusion follows the premises. If there is one thing that I wish would be required for all pastors, teachers, evangelists, and missionaries, it would be that they studied at least basic logic. Most false interpretations would be cleared up quickly in their minds if they actually applied them. I mean, even sadly, though, even most of the men whom have studied it don't actually apply it to their own doctrine. Three, a proper historical context is absolutely necessary for understanding the Bible for a number of reasons. For one reason, the Bible is an old book, and that's just obvious. Some people take phrases like Holy Ghost, and they look up in a modern dictionary the words. And they see that ghost has something more to do with the spirit of a dead person. Then they say, see, this Bible version is endorsing necromancy and teaching that God is dead. Do you see the error in that? That's a real example of someone's bad Bible study practices that I found on YouTube. I'm not joking. You must interpret things first in their proper historical context. When you read verses where, where the psalmist said, put my tears into thy bottle, do you understand what that means? Well, it's regarding a cultural practice. If that person I just mentioned actually checked to see how the word ghost was defined at the time that it was written, then they would have seen that it was merely synonymous with the word spirit. Now, there were specific customs, cultural practices, terms, and figures of speech, idioms, that were used in time past that if we interpret in modern terms, would lead to foolishness. I've seen a History Channel special try to say that the early Christians might have had some homosexual ceremony before because of ridiculous practices 
like this. This type of thing leads people to heresy. So remember that. Grammar, logical consistency, and historical context. Now, perhaps at another time I'll do a series on Bible interpretation and study practices, but for right now you should get the basic idea that a lot of times people misinterpret the Bible because they don't actually know what they're doing. Most people are not taught how to study the Bible. And even a well-meaning believer can do great damage because they don't have the tools to understand their Bible. They may have the Spirit of God in them, but they're hindered by their lack of understanding of it. Some denominations, such as the one that I left, almost come to the point of refusing to allow you to use such things as logic or reasoning. And the reason being, because if you did learn them, you would probably see the error of their entire denomination's statement of faith pretty quickly. But just remember this before we move on. If you hold fast to the true biblical mindset that God is true and his word is true, then you will be more concerned with correctly interpreting it. And you will be more motivated to understand the Bible's truth than for, than for preserving a reputation, a denomination, or a church ministry. Let all those things be cast away if they get in the way of you staying true to God's word. One last thing. Unfortunately, I can't spend endless time going into these things right now, um, constrained by episode. But I would like to point out one very important verse, and some others with it, I guess. Clearly before wrapping things up. Proverbs 18.13 says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. You see, in that verse is the majority of people who profess Christ. They don't really want what's true. They just want community or comfort. They reject what you say before they even examine it. Now, if you want what's true, if you plead for truth and seek it, then anytime someone comes to you and says, you know, you're doing this or believing that, and it's contrary to the Bible, then your response is not a dismissive, well, that's your interpretation. It's not, well, I'm glad that works for you and that the Lord has led you that way, but it's not what works for me. It drives me absolutely bonkers whenever I'm sitting there trying to tell somebody the truth. And even do, I'm doing, you honestly try to do such things in meekness and in the spirit of love because you see danger that the person is not aware of. And I've had somebody say, well, if the Lord's leading you, th you that way, that's good for you. And you're like, I really don't care. It's what God's word says. And you, you're about to walk off a cliff spiritually. Now, do you understand that in those statements that I just said, well, that's your interpretation? Well, I'm glad that works for you and the Lord has led you in that way, but it's not what works for me. Do you understand that in those statements is the denial of God's very unchanging nature? Do you realize that it denies that God has given us his word to be our plumb line and our guide? The psalmist didn't write, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, unless it's contrary to what I want or believe. Proverbs 23, 23 says, Buy the truth and sell it not, also wisdom and instruction and understanding. 
It says, buy the truth. It's going to cost something for you to continue in the truth. Where do you think persecution comes from? You see, people may say that they don't know everything, but they certainly act like it, especially church people, especially pastors, preachers, and teachers. And I'm not trying to just be insulting, but I'm just stating a fact. They answer a matter before they hear it. If you try to talk to people with a mindset, this mindset, at the best you get a quiet little nod and a smile on their face that says, oh, poor little soul that has no understanding. You know why I can say that's exactly what's going through their head? It's because that's what my mindset used to be, and I learned it from them. And most people sincerely believe it, too. They may say that they, you know, will never understand all of God's word. And they'll say, oh, well, you know, we're all continuing and understanding and growing. But they really don't act like it, because if they did, then they would be looking for correction. And they would honestly consider it every single time it came to them. They think that they've got a handle on the scriptures because they read so-and-so's book on the subject who, whose book is sold through CBD, so they got it. They heard that series of sermons their pastor did, so they got it. They went through a discipleship program, so they got it. They went to Bible college, so they got it. Let me relate an encounter I had some months ago to you, and this might make some people who are listening to stop listening. And before I relate it to you, let me tell you that the proper response to a challenge of your doctrinal beliefs is not, well, he's wrong. It's, why does he believe that? And is he right? But some months ago, I was at work. I work in a big postal facility. A certain older fellow who had been through four years of Bible college of the denomination that I had left was working next to me. And now I had intentionally been trying to avoid certain subjects because I don't go looking for an argument usually. Usually. This fellow was a very nice guy. I'm not saying that the guy is someone you can't get along with. An entertaining person to be around. He asked me the one question that I did not want to have a conversation about. He saw that I carried my Bible around and he ascertained that I was someone who desired to study and understand things, so he naturally would ask what I thought about this or that. He just never got a normal churchgoer response from me. But the question that he asked me was, do you believe in eternal security? What then ensued was 45 minutes of me trying to do my work while this fellow grilled me with arguments, and reasons why it was true. What he was unaware of was the fact that I had once believed the doctrine much deeper than him and had been taught it better than him. And I had at this point that he asked me spent about four years studying out the issues from beginning to end and had quite simply reduced the arguments and supposed supports for the doctrine to nothing. He would give me a small lecture or reason, and I would refute it with a verse of Scripture and a single sentence. So then he would go to another small lecture and reason, and I would do the same. Well, after about 45 minutes of this, he stopped talking and was quiet for a minute. Then he looked me right in the eyes and said very soberly, 
If that's true, then it makes me very afraid. And I looked him right in the eyes and I replied very calmly, It's supposed to. Now, do you think that I made a lasting impression on him? Not really. You see, in the entire conversation, there was not a single moment where he expressed a real desire to simply just be in the truth. And what I have found is that most people who are backed into a corner by the scriptures, and they come to the point where they don't have any more reasons to give. They simply just keep believing what they want anyways. Now, can I ask you a question? Are you listening to what I'm saying and turning it over in your mind? Or are you stuck thinking he's wrong about eternal security being unbiblical? Are you seeking truth and just what keeps you comfortable? And before I end this episode, let me point out something from the scriptures regarding truth. I went over the passage in passages in John 14 and 15 earlier where the Spirit of God is called by Jesus Christ, the Spirit of truth, who will lead believers into all truth. Now, if the Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth, who teaches believers the truth, leads us into all truth, and as John said in 1 John 5, 6, he is truth. What do you think happens when you refuse to be corrected? Consider these verses. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30 See, most people pay attention to only part of this verse. The question that came to my mind whenever reading it, was why we are not to grieve him, and upon what conditions was I sealed? You see, all promises of God are conditional. Salvation is conditioned upon your exercising faith in God and continuing in faith in God. If salvation wasn't conditional, then it would be universal, because there would be no distinguishing between why one should be saved and another shouldn't be. So salvation by logical necessity is conditional. So when a believer is sealed with the Spirit of God, I mean, what is it? When, when is a believer sealed with the Spirit of God and upon what conditions? Well, thankfully, Paul answered that question. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we read, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, we read, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. What we see here is that after you hear the truth and believe it, you are sealed with the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth. It is because you believe the truth that you are sealed with the Spirit of God. Now, some people try to say that it is just the gospel that is being referenced ultimately. Well, let's consider some things. One, Paul said the Galatians had been removed from Christ positionally unto another gospel, Galatians 1 verse 6, and that they had ceased to obey the truth. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 5, verse 7. The result being, they had fallen from grace. Galatians chapter 5, verse 4. 
And it is not just saying that they lost their blessing from God, because it specifically states that Christ was become of no effect unto them. Christ's sacrifice was no longer applicable to them as long as they continued believing a false teaching about salvation. And in two, in Second Timothy two eighteen, Paul said, "Who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some." The Greek word for overthrow here is anatrepo, meaning to cause something to fall or be overturned. Now, what happens when a court verdict is overturned? It's reversed and it's undone. Now, did you know that the term justification is a legal term? And here Paul is saying that your state before God can be overthrown, overturned, reversed, undone by believing a false teaching. This one that Paul specifically mentions is denying the future resurrection of believers. And he states very specifically that believing that there is no future resurrection of believers undoes your right state before God. Now, this is just two such examples from the scriptures that demonstrate how important it is for you to plead for truth. You believe the wrong thing, you are removed from Christ. You must plead for truth. You must seek it from God and his word with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not because of a checklist salvation that says, well, if I do A, B, C, then I'm right with God. No, we're right with God by a living confidence in Jesus Christ and his atonement. That's called faith. But what you put your faith in is derived from the word of God. And if you get it wrong, then you might put your faith in that which cannot save you. And the difference between those who plead for truth and those who don't can be the same as the distance between the kingdom of God and hell. Now I strongly urge you to make God's word your true compass and cast everything that tries to come between you away. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.